copy of God's Word. They're there in front of you, and uh, if, as you're opening that, uh, the people here get tired of me saying it, but we always encourage people to know that the pastor doesn't have any authority except from God's Word, and so uh, if you don't have your own copy of Scripture, you can take that home. It's a gift uh, to you, no greater gift than God's living Word, and uh, we have been working through the Gospel of Mark Uh, learning about who is this Jesus and why did he come, and does he still matter? That's kind of the questions we've been asking ourselves, and we come to uh, Mark chapter 12, and it is Tuesday now of Passion Week. Just kind of just put yourself in that, that frame of mind. This is the last week of Christ's earthly life, and it is a day of questioning Mark chapters 11 through 13, if you were to read those as a whole, you would just see that Christ is confronted with a consistent barrage, a machine gun of questions. He can't answer one without them posing another one. And so earlier in Mark chapter 11, verse 28, it really is the key verse, in my opinion, that controls 11 through 13. Mark eleven twenty-eight says, but why, uh, by what authority... Are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? Do you hear them asking that question of who are you and what right do you have? What authority do you have? And they're trying to get him to clarify where does he get his authority from? From whom? The grand says who? And Christ in Mark chapter 11, he won't tell them uh, where he gets his authority from unless they first ask a question. So it really is a day of questions. They ask Christ questions, but Christ, he has some questions for them that they need to uh, answer, and he goes, all right, I'll tell you by what authority uh, I do my work, but first tell me, uh, who gave John the Baptist the authority that he had? And here they are, religious leaders of the day, realizing that if they say, John the Baptist had authority from God, then Christ will say, well, why didn't you listen to him? But if they say, well, John the Baptist, he was just an everyday man, then they feared the crowd, so they remained silent. And Christ says, well, so I remain silent. I won't tell you. That was kind of the the tension that's in the room, kind of a standoff. And so they couldn't trap him with an overtly religious question. Now they're going to try to trap him with a political question. And uh, any pastor getting asked to talk about politics that's under 60 years old also feels like he's in a trap uh, for talking about politics and religion, right? Pastor Jeff, I remember him being on the street. Uh, so if you are new to faith community, Pastor Jeff has, was our pastor for 10 years here, and he used to do a lot of outdoor evangelism. And he would say, uh, you're never supposed to talk about two things, Religion and politics. And he goes, I'm not. I'm just going to talk about one of them. Okay? And that was his kind of joke to get you uh, into his uh, street evangelism. But here, there's a trap on a religious, uh, I'm sorry, on a political question. And you'll sense it right away. We're in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And again, open up your copy of Scripture and I encourage you to follow along. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees, some of the Herodians, to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, and just kind of imagine the tone here, Teacher, we know that you are true, and you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. 
Wow, that's just setting them up, isn't it? So in light of that, right, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They were astonished. They, their mouths are open. They're scratching their heads. And you're saying, what's going on in this passage? Well, the first thing we need to see here is the agenda. If, for those of you that are copious note takers, the agenda is point number one. And before we even see uh, Mark telling us explicitly what their agenda was, they're going to trap him. We heard that in verse 13. We could, as good Bible students, know that something was already underway because there are two groups of people that never do anything together. That is the Pharisees and the Herodians. If you're new to what the Bible is talking about there, Pharisees, religious separatists, okay? Don't want to have anything to do with the culture. They are uh, zealous for the law and followers of it. And so we use that term today that you're a Pharisee, right? Because we're saying that you're so concerned about the law that you kind of forget and, and you're hypocrite. It's kind of synonymous with those things. But the Herodians, they were Jewish as well, but they were of a political mindset. They were sympathetic to Rome, which is where you get the title Herodians, okay? And so that's going to play into the story a little bit. But these two people never do anything together, and here they are. They are now a they. Young people, we all know what the DTR is. Define the relationship. Where is this going? Where is this headed? Have you had the define the relationship talk, right? Where is this heading? They have, they're together, and they realized that it is better to work together as friends when you have a common enemy. And here they are to set Jesus in a trap. Look with me at verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And the word trap comes from the legal context where you're trying to trap someone in the court of law. And when you're trying to trap someone in the court of law, one of the easiest ways to trap somebody is with their words. Did you say this? You know, and how the lawyers, uh, they, they ask you questions to get you to say things that they can hold you up on. And so here we have these two political game wardens out on a manhunt for Jesus. He is a wanted man, and they are looking for him to indict himself, to bring a trap against him. It is a convenient partnership. And so as we're thinking about the authority of Christ, we see he's up against people that are really set on trapping and destroying. The depth of the opposition of two parties that never work together, coming together just to destroy him. But we also see how dark and ironic this is. We believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And here these parties are trying to detour the way, trying to lie about the truth, trying to kill the one who is the life, who is the only hope of eternal life. That is their strategy. So now let's look at our second point this morning, the approach. Verse 14, maybe you're not surprised by their intent, but look at how they approach it. They approach it and they camouflage their tactics with what? Flattery. Good old-fashioned butter them up. Teacher, 
we know that you are true and you don't care about anyone's opinion. You're going to say it like it is. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. It's like they actually want to know, what do you think about this? But they're duplicitous, they're hypocrisy. Christ calls it out. But here they're trying to get him to believe through flattery. And it works still to this day. Flattery can be a part of churches. Oh, pastor, that was a great sermon. Oh, this is the friendliest church we've ever been to. All right, and it goes on. Not all that glitters is gold, okay? And so Christ sees through their flattery, and that's just an important part for us to pause here for a second and to realize how our words and flattery, it's a lot about the Christian life. Christians believe propositional truths, these things, and so we have to profess those. And so Christians, we have a, lar- we have a hard time with making sure that our hearts and our lives keep up with what we say, don't we? We can talk the talk better than we can walk the walk sometimes. And so here we already see this dilemma in these people that they're talking, oh yeah, we love you, Jesus. You're the best teacher there is. Please teach us, Jesus. Really, their hearts are far from them. That would just be a great time for us just to pause and make one application. That's the benefit of being in community together because it's not just what you say, it's lives lived. And a church comes together to say, we want to help you make sure what you're professing is what you're possessing by discipleship along the way. And that's what the beauty of being a part of a church family is all about. It's difficult, it's the truth and love, but it's Christ's ideal. And so, moving beyond a quick application, now we see what the trap is in verse 14. They ask him this question. It's the question of the century. It is this. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? You might not sense how difficult of a question that is, but you remember, you've got to put Jesus back in that historical context. We can't separate him and say that he wasn't a part of a certain set of time, certain cultural setting. And so what's going on in that day is that Christ is being presented with a heads I win, tails you lose kind of scenario. You remember that as a kid? Okay. It is a question you don't want to have to answer. Because this is how it works. If he says, don't pay taxes, then he can be charged in Jerusalem while Rome is occupying Jerusalem with an insurrection. He could be arrested for someone who wants to lead a revolt against Rome. Not a good option that way. If he says, you know, paying taxes is a good thing, go ahead and do it then he can lose touch with the everyday common man that is Jewish, that is burdened and oppressed by the Roman government and can't even stand having to use their coins with Caesar's image on it that says Caesar is God on one side and the high priest on the other. And it just feels like a spit in the face of their national identity. And so either way, it feels like Christ is going to get put behind bars or lose touch with the people. We don't have to go too far in our own minds as far as history goes to understand that how taxes and dis- discussions about taxes can really have led to some of the biggest revolutions we actually know of. 25 years before Christ, there was a guy whose name was Judas the Galilean. If you want to look up Acts chapter 5, verse 36, Acts 5.36, it's a whole story about this guy. And this guy wanted to lead a revolt against Rome. And he convinced the Jewish people of that day not to pay taxes. 
And then guess what he did? He went in and he cleansed the temple of all Gentiles. And then he had this message. We don't want to have Caesar as our king. We want God to be king. That's 25 years before Christ. Christ comes on the scene, Mark chapter 1. What's he preaching? The kingdom of God is at hand. Okay? We don't want Caesar to be our king. We want God to be our king. National Israel, Messiah. Then in Mark chapter 11, he cleanses the temple. Hmm. So far, he does two of the three things Judas the Galilean does. The only thing that's missing is what? The political insurrection. So who is this Christ, and what is he going to do? This scene is as tense as talking about the tea tax if you were from Boston in the 1770s, okay? I mean, it is a big deal. I just had this week a neighbor. Our, uh, our house, if you haven't been over, we'd love to have you over, but our house is on the corner of Mudget Hill and Voted Road, and it is the school bus stop. So twice a day, 10 cars basically barricade us in. And uh, I get out, and I recognize one of the ladies that's there at the end of the corner, and I wrote on my window to say hello. I say, hello, and, and many of you would know her, and, uh, and she works lo locally here. And uh, I said, how are you today? She goes, oh, horrible. Not typically uncommon. And, uh, and, and so I said, what's going on? She goes, oh, don't check your mail. And I was like, oh, yeah, why not? She goes, taxes are in here today. My taxes went up. $400, you know, and she was just, you know, uh, her lovely self, you know, just, just, just uh, upset uh, about these taxes. And so we know that uh, taxes can have a long history of resentment. So this question they're trying to trap him in is truly the question of the century. It reveals his loyalties. He's going to lose it with Rome or lose it with the people, maybe even lose his own life, but definitely lose his popularity. And so how is Christ going to answer this question? Look with me here at verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? He blows the camouflage of leaves right off the trap, exposes it for what it is, and then notice this, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. What's the next phrase says? And they brought him one. Isn't it interesting the very thing that these people were going to question him about, the very thing that people despised? Guess what? They had access to one. Kind of shows what they were really getting at, right? Okay, I don't, Jesus didn't have one on him. But hey, can you get me one? Oh, sure. So they're already recognizing the legitimacy of the Roman state. They might have already used it in that day's business dealings because they're able to produce one. And yet they want to trap him in it. And Christ says an astounding question here. Whose likeness and inscription is this? Verse 16 they said to him, Caesar's. So Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We're going to stop there. There's all kinds of intricacies that we could talk about in that sentence. But here's the main thing that all commentators agree on is the key point. It is found in verse 16 with this word, whose likeness and inscription is this? It's the same word that's used for image throughout the Bible. Whose image? image is on this and that really kind of clarifies the whole point so look at the coin whose image is on it depending upon whose image is on it give it to the person who represents that and if all he wants is a coin 
Give him a coin. If it has his image on it, literally, it came from his wealth. It was minted. It was literally his money. And if that's all that he wants from you, give him his coin. It could, it could even be looked at here kind of flippantly like that. If that's all that he wants, give him his coin. It has his image on it. Literally, it was minted out of his wealth. At that point, their mouths would have been open. They would have been scratching their heads. Mark says they marveled at it because for them, holding a Roman coin with Caesar's image on it reminded them of their political oppression. It would have astonished them that Christ says, give back to Caesar's what is rightfully his. If you want to make kind of a modern-day parallel, modern-day Muslims and their idea that part of their religion is ushering in a religious state, death to infidels, right? There is going to be uh, all those that are against us are going to be wiped out. There would have been some Jews that would thought that Messiah is going to come on the scenes and he's going to wipe out all the oppressors. And so using this coin would have astonished them that Christ is saying, paying taxes to Caesar is all right. That would have astonished them. The Roman government does not need to be aligned with the one true God to be legitimate. That would have been the first time these Jews would have ever thought of that. Did you catch that? The Roman government does not need to be aligned with the one true God in order to be legitimate. Because if you're from the nation of Israel, ever since the days of Moses, all the way through Nehemiah, Israel has been in a national covenant with God. Amen? And we believe that that's going to happen later. But for right now, Christ is saying, because you rejected me, I'm going to give the vineyard to somebody else. That was Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. We just looked at it last week. So each week kind of building here. But Christ is saying that no longer does every regime have to be God's regime for it to be legitimate. Jesus, at this point in time, is not ushering in a theocracy where God is the king. Going back to the days of, of Saul and David, you know, before they had a king, it's not going back then. And so here's a couple of applications for us this morning on just this phrase, render to Caesars the things that are Caesars. How does that impact our life today? All of that good textual work, what does it mean for us? I think there's two-fold uh, application for us. First, it means that we need to keep taking seriously the commissioning of everyday people to employments where you work for Caesar. Christ is saying here, it is okay to work for Caesar. And we take seriously at our church, bringing people up. Anytime someone in our church gets a new job, gets a promotion, we bring them up. We interview them. We ask, how is the gospel, how is their Christian worldview going to impact what they do every day of the week. And we pray over them, and we send them out to be what? A paid missionary. Because, yes, it's awesome that many times Christians elevate pastors and vocational missionaries. There's also, and there's a privilege, and there's some responsibility with that, but that also does us some harm when we just look at the pastor and those vocational missionaries as the only ones that have a calling from God. The good news about the gospel is all of us have a calling of God to go everywhere using whatever means we have. So here's the point for us to take home. Who you work for is more important than what you do, right? And by who you work for, I mean what? Jesus Christ. Guys, we're only in church three hours a week tops. But when we commission you to go be a paid missionary, 
And Caesar might even be paying you to be that missionary. You get to use your talents and your skills, not just for a 401k and four weeks of vacation, but you get to use it to be ambassadors for Christ where you work. And so what does that mean for us as a church? I want to connect the dots with where we're going, where the Lord is leading several of us in this church to go. That means this church needs to see itself on mission rather than just having a missions committee. What I mean by that is this. We're all paid missionaries. We all have to be caring about it. And our mission can't be isolated or compartmentalized to one department of five or six people that raise their hands and say, I'll serve on that committee. All of us need to be involved. Now, we're going to try to grow in what that means. And here's where the church always grows. You want to hear it? Church growth strategy right here. It's profound. Prayer. How does the church grow? How does this church want to grow and how it does mission? By learning to pray for missionaries and for what God is doing us. And so if you'd like, we'd love for you to join us each Sunday night, 6 o'clock. We pray together. And we're going to have some things before you in the next couple of weeks on how to learn to pray for our missionaries more. We hope that you caught that in our time of prayer where we highlight a local church that we pray for, other brother and like-minded churches, as well as missionaries. Here's a second application for us. This one's a little bit more challenging. When Christ paid the tax, this head tax here, it was a census tax is where they got this from. And part of why the Jews hated it so much was because it was a head tax, it represented their oppression by the Romans. Christ paying this head tax to Rome was helping pay the salary of the Roman centurion that was going to crucify him four days from now. You catch that? By him rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's, he was helping pay the salary of the guy that was going to drive nails through his hands, put a crown of thorn on his head, and nails through his feet. It's the same government that's going to kill almost all of the apostles in the next 70 years. So here's the application for us. If Christ, if Paul in Romans 13, if Peter in 1 Peter 2 can all support the Roman government. What world government can Christians not live in and live under? Think about that. What does that mean for us? Christians have a responsibility to the state to be good citizens. The state is not our ultimate loyalty. It's also not our ultimate authority because he doesn't just say, render to see the things that are Caesar's. He doesn't just end there. He goes on and he says this, and to God the things that are God's. Now, what's, what is God's? That's kind of the main question there, right? How do you know? The logic is the same. Take the coin. If the coin has Caesar's image on it, then give him whatever is his. So where do we find out what has God's image on it? Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, what does it say? Male and female both. He created them in his own likeness or in his own image. So what are you to render to God? Your whole life. Your whole life. Not just this coin that you can give to Caesar. No, your whole life. And so it seems to me the application of this passage is that Christ intends your life, my life, to be given to him to bring him glory under his authority.
coming underneath his authority. Let's go over to Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. Rich read it uh, earlier in the service, but now hear it again in light of Christ's authority and how all things come underneath him. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. Pages are flipping. We love to hear that here. Screens are swiping. If you have a glow on your face, it's okay. Just don't have multiple windows open, all right? Just the Bible app. That'll work. I know what you guys are up to. Colossians 1, 16 through 17. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. We are just lifting up the authority of Christ in Colossians 1. The scribes and the elders began in Mark chapter 11 with this question of whose authority do you have to teach? Whose authority do you have to forgive sins? Mark chapter 3. Whose authority do you have to cleanse the temple? Mark chapter 11. Whose authority do you have to tell us about our relationship to the state? It is the grand says who. And what does Christ say? Because I have your image, my image stamped on you, and because I created this world, and by my power, the very word, the world holds together by the word of my power, that's whose authority this is. Would you please recognize and worship my authority? Don't you just love how Christ, with his confidence of who he is, sent from the Father, can stand before man completely unintimidated? Guys, when people, don't don't forget the human element. When people are plotting against you, does it keep you up at night? Maybe it's just pastors that have gone through that, okay? But I'm sure you have as well. People trying to catch you in something, a word or a phrase, or did you footnote your sermon, or did you say it just right? Guys, it can be intimidating to be a teacher. It can be intimidating when your company is out to get you. HR is out to get you, right? You you know that feeling? And here Christ is standing, not intimidated by religious leaders. And what's even better, just go a couple more chapters of Mark, he stands before Pilate, unintimidated. Remember when he stands there and he's in silence before Pilate? Pilate's questioning him. And Pilate says this in John chapter 19. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you or crucify you? Pilate's saying, speak up. Don't you realize that if you give me the right answer, you might get to go free? I might want to speak. Christ's not intimidated. Look at what he says in John 19, 11. See if you'd say this. We, we can't, but just see if you would. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Confidence. I'm standing here. How can he say that? Friends, this is the application that should lead your heart to awaken in affection, in worship, and to exalt Christ. That Christ has all authority to stand there, and our response should not be at the end of this passage, wow, Christ can answer questions better than anybody. Look at how he got out of that one. That's not the application for this passage. Because this is Passion Week. It's all moving to the cross. The gospel story is continuing, and it leads to him dying on the cross. And so this is what we should get out of this. It is on his timetable. No one else. It's his prerogative. John 10, let's go back there. 
John 10. You need to see this for yourself. These are just great passages to know, maybe to underline your Bible if you enjoy that. Come on, more pages turning. I want to hear John 10, 17 through 18. Again, the modern day age, I don't get to hear phones swiping, but it's still good to see at least the glow on your face. Don't be looking at me. Look down at the text. Here it is, John 10, 17 through 18. And just hear how Christ has authority. Again, we are suspect to authority. We despise authority in our life. But it's part of what it means to worship Christ is to treasure that and to savor it and to see it. 17 through 18, for this reason the Father loves me because I laid on my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. Pilate, you might think you are. Evil men you might think you are, but I lay it down of my own according. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Christ decided when he would allow himself to fall into the hands and the jaws of sin and death and judgment. And beloved, he's not ready to be crucified over money. It's not why he's going to get crucified. He's not going to be crucified as a national political organizer. He's not going to be crucified as a revolutionary. When he decides to lay down his life for the Jews and the Romans, it's against the charge of blasphemy. This man claims to be God. So there's no misunderstanding why Christ died. It wasn't just death. He died for our sins, 1 Corinthians 15 says. There is theological implications for why he died. There is a judgment for why he died. He didn't just die as a good man or someone who said the wrong things. He died, 1 Corinthians 15, for our sins. And after three days, lying slain in the grave by death, he had the authority to take his life up back from the grave and live again. So that now there is witnesses from out all of the world that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's why we sing that last song. One of those songs, I think it was the second song in our praise team set, kind of ushered us into that eternal realm where before the throne of God, there are all these nations worshiping him because he has all authority because he is the lamb that was slain that lives again. So let's just kind of tease this out in our life. Here are some broad brushstrokes, but here's the question I want you guys to ponder all week long. If I really believed in Christ's authority in my life and over all of heaven and earth, what would be unleashed in my life? What kind of power would be unleashed in my life if I truly believed that Christ had all authority over heaven and earth? We say that, it's in Matthew 28, it's in the Great Commission, but what, it, what would be unleashed in our life? How did it change your Monday? How do we connect Sunday to Monday? How would it change your Monday if you truly believe that Christ had all authority in heaven and on earth? Here's the first one. It would help you avoid safe, comfortable, consumer Christianity. Safe, comfortable, consumer Christianity. What I mean by that is this. There has never been nor will there ever will be, again, a greater sin than crucifying the Son of God. And if God, the Father, can sovereignly govern even the worst and greatest sin ever for His glory and our good, what does that mean about God's sovereignty and his control, and his plan over every frustration, setback, 
bumble and fumble, and I will even add to that, the sins of other men and women, how can God not sovereignly control all of that for his glory and your good if he did that for the cross? That really means treasuring, savoring, surrendering to the authority of Christ. Many of you, I know your stories, and you would say, Josh, I would never have wanted this to happen in my life. If I could avoid that, if I could get a redo, if I could hit the reset button, I wouldn't go down that path again. And yet we see that we need to remember as an American church that we follow a rejected, crucified Messiah. And what does that mean for us? Peter tells us. 1 Peter 2.21, if you want to look it up. 1 Peter 2.21, For to this you have been called. What? For this you have been called. What does that mean? It's not optional. It's part of the plan. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. We follow the pattern of our Messiah. And he took up his cross and he went to Calvary and he gives us the same message. What is that message? Take up your cross daily and follow me. Many of us are not going to get one big moment where we're going to get to decide to follow Jesus or not and die or not. But you get involved in ministry. You get involved in mission. You get involved with Christ being the Lord of your life and all authority in heaven and on earth and you will die many deaths every day. Amen? And it won't feel good. We're going to be rejected by men. We're going to be hurt by each other. Our setbacks, our plans, our dreams, our visions all conform to the authority of Christ. Is that not an application that we need to hear? Help us to avoid safe, comfortable, consumer Christianity. Second, it helps us to avoid national pride. National pride. We need to remember that we are Christians first and Americans second. We have a great church culture here of being good citizens, praying for our president, praying for our local legislator. We pray for our, even our local elementary school principal. We care about everybody. We pray for those people. But we also need to remember that Christ took the vineyard away from the Jewish leaders because they rejected his authority, and he gave it to sheep that weren't of that fold. Because Christ still wants to draw in sheep. And guess who that is? Me and you. He took it away from the Jews and he gave it to the Gentiles because they rejected his authority. They didn't respect his person. So now Christians are transcultural. Christians are international. I met with Rachel and she told me about the cockroaches that she saw in Africa. And I thought this would be a good application for us as Christians. Christians should be cockroaches. We can survive underneath any situation. Thank you, Rachel, for going to Africa to teach us that. Seriously, tell someone that you know is a Christian this morning. Actually, turn to your neighbor right now and say, you're like a cockroach. That'll just bless someone's heart. Just encourage them with that. But in reality... We can thrive and we can serve and we can minister underneath any nation because Christ told us to go and make disciples of all what? Nations. So we take risks. And this is where it hurts. We take risks. And I just talked to a lady just before the service started. I was late getting in here because she shared a story with me. She shared a story with me about 
her children taking the risk of being foster parents. Is there not a greater unsung hero in our world than foster parents? Amen? These, these, are, these, are, these are anonymous heroes. And you get hurt when you have people, don't you? And they have two children they've taken in over the past three years. And this is what she said. Josh, it feels like just a drop in the bucket. That's what, that's what they were experiencing. The need is so great. Just a drop in the bucket. These are two children, just two. Right? So you hear their hearts breaking. But is that God's vision? Do they get to be God and say whether it's a drop in the bucket or not? If God's called you to do that and that's what you did, God can make much of that. Because here's this promise. Even a little church in Loud, New Hampshire, we take risk knowing that Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Nothing can stand against Christ gathering his sheep from around the world by his authoritative voice. Even when you feel that all that you did was drop in the bucket, if God called you to do it, guess what? It's part of moving the ball forward. So what? It's part of his plan. So we're not nationalistic. Finally, I'm going to get in trouble on this one, but it also helps us to avoid political primacy. Render to Caesar things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. What do I mean by political primacy? When we actually begin to appreciate that we're under Christ's lordship and his authority over heaven and earth and that he is an international God, not a local deity, God of the universe, then we don't put too much confidence in politics. There's more power in the cross than the ballot box. Some of us need to remember that. We get inundated all day long with news, and even now there's news, and there's scrolling news underneath it. I can't keep both going. I'm, you know, I'm getting dizzy with the things that are happening. I can't even listen to enough podcasts on my two-minute drive to work. Okay, I just, There's a lot going on. We know about the world. We do not trust in chariots or horses, the Bible says, but the lamb that was slain and risen again. Politics is a temporary part of your life. There's going to come a day, there's not going to be Republicans or Democrats, there's going to be a dictatorship, and it's going to be King Jesus, and he will be just and true, and he will rule the world, and there will be peace. That is what we're looking forward to. So if Christ, if you really believe Christ has all authority, how is it going to impact your life? Just go and see how much time you spent in Scripture versus how much news you watched. That would be just a great take-home. Do you get worked up about what you're reading or what you're listening to on AM radio on your ride to work, or do you put in some Christian Scripture just to listen to? That would be a great application for us today. So, don't engage politics as ultimate. Christ is ultimate. He has all authority in heaven and earth. What does that mean for you? Have you seen it this morning? Have you savored it? How does that look like in our church? If you see and savor Christ's authority in your life, it should lead you to sacrifice for others. Okay, here's my last application. We're going to land this plane. Babies. It's going to connect. Rachel looked at me like, this guy is crazy. It, there's some truth to that. Babies. Everybody loves babies. Would you agree? Holding babies. Yesterday there was a birthday party for Chris Huff. There was a two-week-old baby. You don't get to see those all the time, right? 
Now, I've been told, don't grab their hands, you know, because germs. It's not my child. I don't offer to hold the baby, but I said, can I touch its feet? Because, you know, that's, besides hands, feet are there. But what's the third favorite thing people love to do? Look at a baby. Ladies especially love to do this, but I think guys get involved. Oh, she has her mother's lips. Oh, he has the father's nose. And we love the guessing game. And then grandparents, they come unglued. <gasps> it looks just like me when I was a boy. I mean, there is just that, you know, there's the, there's the York family line, okay? There's the Moore, you know. The, and, and we love seeing that our children represent us. God wants to see his children look like him. And one of the things that we need to look like, church, is that God, and part of his image, is his sentness. He sent his son. And so part of what we need to look like as a church is what does it look like when we are sent in sacrificial love for others? That can be to your neighborhood or that could be to the nations, but we need both, amen? You go locally, you go globally, and that's actually what is the culture and the fruit of a discipleship church. We have parents that are equipped to make disciples of their children. Those children get raised up by going to junior church with people that invest in their lives alongside their parents. They get sent to the mission field. They grow in God's mission. And as a church, we are trying to grow from being just a supporting financial church to a true sending church, nurturing them along the way in short-term, long-term, mid-term seasons, but also learning what it means to welcome them back because there isn't a single person that goes off to war that doesn't come back with some bruises. Amen? That's where we're headed, and that's all in light of Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. And you could go to your small group this week and you could just ask the question, how would my life change if I truly believed Christ had all authority in heaven and on earth? How that revolutionized me going to work? How that revolutionized my relationships? How that changed this church and our prayers for the nation? How would it limit my national pride and my belief in politics? How would it make me see myself as a Christian first and everything in light of the gospel? That's the good news this morning. Have you surrendered to the authority of Christ? Do you see him and his authority as the exact imprint of the Father, having all the attributes of God the Father equally? Have you also come to see and to savor his sovereign control over hell and heaven and over man, where not one demon or one person can move one square inch without his word? Does that not bring you security and confidence that as Christ speaks and rules and reigns, He's not even limited by human sin. Even though it crucified him on the cross, he's still governed for his glory and for our good. And he can do that in your life. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning.